You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor, The Washington Post. The Israel-Hamas war rages on, and President Biden continues to try to exert U.S. leadership in the middle of it. Joining me now, Yasmin Abu Talib, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Yasmin, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. Okay. During his joint Rose Garden press conference with the Australian Prime Minister on Wednesday, President Biden addressed the Israel-Hamas war and said this. Listen. Hamas is hiding behind Palestinian civilians and is despicable and not surprisingly cowardly as well. This also puts an added burden on Israel while they go after Hamas. But uh, that does not lessen the need for to operate in the line with the laws of war. So, Yasmin, you reported yesterday in the Post that the president made those remarks um, out of concerns uh, expressed by Arab, um, out of Arab concerns about Israeli military strikes in Gaza. Why the shift? Well, there are a number of reasons for it. When um, this October 7th attack first happened, um, you know, President Biden and his top officials were all, you know, very behind Israel, said that they had a, a right and a duty to defend themselves, um, supported their stated aim of, of taking out Hamas. Uh, but then, you know, the pressure shifted as Israel started conducting um, a pretty unrelenting airstrike campaign in Gaza that, you know, has resulted in more than 6,000, uh, maybe now 7,000 Palestinians who have died, a lot of whom are children. Pressure has built on the president, both from members of his own party, but also as his secretary of state, Antony Blinken, was traveling throughout the region um, a little over a week ago. You know, he went to Israel, said he supported them, the U.S. would be behind them. But as he met with Arab leaders, I think the the president and Blinken and his, their top officials quickly realized that if they were going to maintain support among key allies in the region, so not just Israel, but, you know, key Arab leaders in the region, these, these leaders were facing a lot of pressure from their citizens who were outraged about the bloodshed in Gaza, about the number of civilian deaths that were happening in Israel's counterattack, um, and that if they were going to maintain support among these allies, that they would need to take seriously the civilian suffering and death in Gaza, because not only have there been a lot of deaths, Israel announced a full siege of Gaza um, in response to the Hamas attacks, where they have cut off food, water, electricity, and fuel. So the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is extremely dire, um, and there's been international pressure building to do something about it and to just not, not let it continue unfettered. Yes, I mean, how tough a balancing act is it for the president and the administration to condemn Hamas while also urging Israel to uh, urging to use restraint uh, regarding civilians in Gaza. You can see that this has been a tough balancing act for them from the beginning. Of course, in the aftermath of the attack, uh, because of its brutality and how gruesome it was, and details were coming out about just how horrific the attacks were, you know, days and even more than a week afterwards. You, there was, of course, a, a very emotional response to it um, and, and saying, you know, that the administration stood with Israel, the United States would provide whatever it needed. But then I think once there were a lot of images and videos coming out of what was happening in Gaza in response to this, and I think there's just been 
renewed attention on this this conflict in general, on the conditions in Gaza, even before this current crisis started, uh, that there's been pressure to address the Palestinian issue much more seriously. So you've seen, and in the um, press conference with the Australian prime minister, President Biden made his strongest comments to date about the need for a two-state solution and the need to think about what comes afterwards. So you can see just in their public statements and readouts of calls with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and then some Arab leaders, how the administration is trying to respond to the pressure and the balancing act they need to strike of wanting to stand behind Israel, but also not wanting to look like they're neglecting what's happening in Gaza and the civilian suffering that's happening there. And on the two-state solution, Yasmin, how, how is that assertion going? Um, over, how's it going over at home and abroad? The two-state solution being a Palestinian state—excuse <clears throat> me—a Palestinian state alongside Israel. I think most presidents have supported the concept of a two-state solution. The difference has been what level of effort they're willing to put into it. So this is an administration that. Sure, they support the idea of a two-state solution, but hasn't really dedicated uh, time or resources to it. And I think there was this thinking among a lot of top officials, not just in the Biden administration, but for a number of years now, that the Palestinian issue had lost some importance in the Arab world and that you could have some of these Arab countries normalize with Israel without resolving the Palestinian issue. The Abraham Accords, which were struck at the end of the Trump administration um, and were aimed at normalizing ties with Israel and four countries in the region. Uh, I, th I think some officials saw that as proof that you could start to have Israel more integrated into the region without really resolving the Palestinian issue. And this, this current conflict, I think, has made very clear that no, this issue still carries a lot of importance in the Arab world, whether it's leaders or leaders responding to their citizens, uh, that there will have to be another effort at trying to resolve this issue. Um, and I'm, I'm scribbling a note here to remind myself to ask you this question. You finished sooner than I thought. So then what does this mean about the, what does this mean for the Saudi Arabia-Israel normalization agreement that uh, you listen to the analysts and experts was this close to being nailed down? Um, and that that is the, one of the reasons Hamas um, conducted its terror terror attack on October 7th. Is that potential agreement just a non-starter now? It's a great question, Jonathan, and I think it's definitely clearly top of mind for the president. He said during that press conference, and he had said one time before that as well, that he believed, and he said, I don't have any proof of this, but my gut just tells me that part of the reason Hamas attacked right now is because Saudi Arabia and Israel were close to coming to a normalization deal. And I think, you know, not only does the administration want to limit the risk of escalation in the region in this current conflict, they also don't want to lose progress for what they had in motion before October 7th. And of course, uh, probably the biggest um, effort that they had in the Middle East before that was this Israel-Saudi Arabia normalization agreement. So obviously the ground is not ripe for that right now, but I think officials are working very hard to be able to come back to it once tensions, if they do, if, if things start to calm down in the region at all, or attention shifts, but it's, it's obviously not going to be anytime soon. And one more question for you real quick, Yasmin. The president also spoke, quote, uh, spoke of, quote, a vision of what comes next in the Middle East. How concerned is the president and the administration that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu does not 
have a vision of what comes yet. Next. I think they're extremely concerned. I mean, Netanyahu has formed the most right-wing government in Israel's history and has basically dismissed the idea of a two-state solution. I mean, one other thing that was a bit striking in President Biden's comments on Wednesday is that he condemned in pretty strong language Israeli settlers in the West Bank. So, of course, not in, in Gaza, where this, con this current conflict is taking place, but in the West Bank, which is ruled by the Palestinian Authority and is occupied by Israel, he condemned in, in pretty strong language is armed Israeli settlers who have been attacking Palestinians. I think at least 100 Palestinians have been killed in deadly clashes uh, with armed settlers in the West Bank and with Israeli defense forces. And, and President Biden said, you know, they're pouring gasoline on the fire by attacking Palestinians who have a right to be there. This is a deal that they came to. And we just haven't heard that sort of language from the president. I mean, in general, but especially since this conflict began. And so, you know, I, I think there is a lot of concern that Netanyahu's government and his cabinet are not conducive to trying to find a solution to a Palestinian state and to, uh, you know, lay the ground for for some sort of peace talks after this is over. Yasmin Abu Talib, Washington Post White House reporter. Thank you very much, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and Ramesh Panuru. Jennifer, Ramesh, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here. Good morning. So, Jennifer, good morning. Jennifer, you wrote this week that the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority is also culpable for this war. Explain. Well, let me just back up a second. President Biden's rhetoric actually has not changed at all. If you go back from the beginning, he has studiously maintained three things. First, that the Israelis have a right to defend themselves. Secondly, that the uh, Hamas is solely responsible for these things. And three, that Israel has the right to defend itself within the laws of war. So this notion that somehow he has backpedaled or he's bending over backwards is inaccurate. Um, go back and look at the first speech he made and go back at his most recent statements, and they've really remained um, completely consistent. As far as the PA goes, um, if people remember back to 2006, um, there was an election in Gaza, and the Hamas won that election, and that was the last election they had. And since then, Hamas has been terrorizing Gaza. The PA then and since then has been really utterly discredited by its own behavior. It's corrupt, it's unfunctioning, it has a aging leader um, who refuses to um, really take any risks for peace. So the problem has been that as the PA has declined, Hamas has become the only viable entity with credibility amongst many Palestinians. They may not like Hamas, they may be fearful of Hamas, but the PA does not provide anything for them. And this has been a fundamental problem for some time. And this remains the ultimate issue when the war is finally over, and it finally will be over, which is who does Israel negotiate with? 
Israel in the past has made deals um, of uh, offered uh, deals for peace for uh, land. Uh, at one point, they offered um, about 98% of the West Bank, but there's never been an entity on the other side to negotiate. And now there is no entity that even enjoys popular support. This remains a fundamental problem on the Palestinian side that's long been neglected. So I think the West and in particular the administration has to begin to put pressure on the Palestinian Authority to shape up, to reform, to cut out the uh, corruption so that they are then in a position to negotiate with the Israelis, who, by the way, will not have Netanyahu. The government will almost certainly fall and be replaced, we hope, by some entity, by some coalition that is much more conducive to peace negotiations. Ramesh, would love your, your perspective on this. Sure. Um, well, I should say, um, you know, it's been very easy during this crisis to focus on Hamas and Israel and Iran. Uh, and I think uh, um, Jennifer is absolutely right that the Palestinian Authority um, should also be a focus and that has played an underappreciated role in this. So I found her entirely persuasive, both in um, her column for the Post and also uh, in her remarks today. Um, so I, I don't really have uh, have anything to add to that except to, to second it, just to say, mm -hmm. yes, we are going to, I think, need to pressure the Palestinian Authority and uh, uh, and push for reform there and not simply sort of tolerate it or accept it as uh, just the way things are. Okay, well, let me get let me get you on this one then. Um, I was talking with Yasmin uh, a moment ago about um, um, the two-state solution. It's long been a goal. I remember being at a, one of President Clinton's last major events before he was leaving the White House, and he was still at the negotiating table and talking about how he was like, we could do it in the like 14 days he had left uh, as president. But are we farther away from that goal than we've ever been in the wake of the Hamas attack on Israel? Well, it sure doesn't look like it's getting any closer right now. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it uh, it seems to make more sense than any of the alternatives, but how you get there is, uh, is it's, it's just still this gigantic chasm between here and there. Um, and yeah, I think I think that um, a lot of people would say um, that this it's it's beginning to look almost utopian. Jennifer, I'm going to try to find a silver lining in this rainstorm of depressive, horrible news, and that is that wars tend to shake up society. They change the balance of power in the region, they change um, internal governments. And I can imagine a situation in which after the war is over, Hamas is badly decimated, um, that there has been great suffering in Gaza. But at the same time, um, the current government, which is responsible for the single greatest security failure in Israeli history, and frankly, the worst day of Jewish murders and um, really atrocities since the Holocaust, falls from power. And then what happens? 
perhaps there can be a government um, in Israel that is more conducive, not necessarily to an end state peace talks, but to small improvements in the lives of Palestinians and to the beginning of at least a relationship in which they can communicate and they can begin to improve the lives of the Palestinians. You know, there has always been this rush to the end point, to a final uh, stage solution where everything is decided. Um, and I think after the war, there will be an opportunity for Israel to act um, to humanitarily uh, support the Palestinians, um, but also for the Israeli government to take a relook. The current government has been badly discredited. They were going down the tubes before this with the attempt to remake the judiciary, and now they're really in utter disgrace. Something like 80% of the Israeli population, which can never agree on anything, um, holds um, Netanyahu responsible for this. So I would like to think that once the dust settles, that there's a way of kind of shaking the foundation, there's a way of kind of beginning anew, um, and perhaps through some baby steps, um, we can at least begin to see some progress towards an end state solution. So uh, if, one, if I could- Oh, so yeah, go ahead, sure. Sure. Uh, that, that's an interesting thought. And um, uh, and I think that it's right to think that uh, in a way we have to kind of lower our sights um, to more incremental moves in order to make any progress. I do wonder, though, about the effects on the other side, because suffering can be radicalizing. Uh, and in fact, I think you can you can say that the suffering of Gazans is part of the strategy of Hamas. And so there's also this question of what happens on the, you know, what's what's going on on the other side of the table. Mm -hmm. um, let's shift gears and talk about um, the chaos here at home and particularly on Capitol Hill um, uh, in, um, in Washington after a three week ordeal. Republicans finally settled on Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana to be Speaker of the House. <laughs> Ramesh, was this a uh, was this a wise choice or the only choice? Well, uh, it depends on uh, who we're talking about having made this choice. I think that the holdouts who sank Scalise uh, and sank Emmer and sank McCarthy in the first place. Um, I think it worked out pretty well for them. They've demonstrated their power. Uh, they've, you know, they've 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 collected scalps, uh, and uh, and then they and then they took a victory. Um, whether it made sense for the party as a whole or for the Republican conference as well, I think that's a very different question. Um, I'm not sure. Look, I think I think one of the things that has happened here is that a lot of uh, Republicans have been misled or have misled themselves into thinking that legislative outcomes were likely to be wildly different and more pleasing under a different speaker. When you've got a narrow and fractious majority in the House and you don't have the Senate and you don't have the White House, you're not going to get there. You're not going to get your way very much. And uh, and a lot of people have a hard time accepting that. Mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer, last night I interviewed Congresswoman Angie Craig of Minnesota. Uh, who made a point of wishing her wife a happy anniversary before casting her vote for Hakeem Jeffries uh, in the last speaker's race. Uh, and she, what she said to me last night was, Speaker Johnson's election represents the completion of MAGA's takeover of the Republican Party. The com completion of MAGA's takeover of the Republican Party. And I say it twice because it just sort of crystallized the moment for me. Do you agree? 
I think this happened a, a while ago. Everyone keeps talking about the soul, the battle for the soul of the Republican Party. That was lost a while back. Um, and what we now just see is further evidence that there are no so-called moderates. There are no uh, people within the Republican Party who are willing to stand up. Listen, that group of 20 or so people who like to call themselves moderates, who are actually quite conservative, could have sunk this speakership as well. But they never do. When the chips are down, they always fold. And this is why the MAGA forces um, have been able to exercise such dominance, is that they will kowtow to the far right, but that the other side of the spectrum, um, however numbers, uh, whatever numbers you want to say, never stand up for themselves. They never stand up for a more coherent form of uh, governance, and they never stand up for functional government. So I think this is, in some respect, a triumph of the notion that they're not there to govern at all, that this is just performance politics. And I worry very much with the shutdown coming up and more importantly, with votes for Ukraine and for Israeli uh, aid um, in suspension, that we're going to have another meltdown. And this is the worst possible time to have people who are ideologically extreme um, at the helm. And frankly, here's a connection to Israel. Uh, Netanyahu put extremely right-wing ideologues who are utterly incompetent in key positions, and they wound up with a horrible, horrible disaster. If we put unserious people in a high office, we leave ourselves open to disaster. Ramesh, uh, President Biden issued a statement pledging to work with the new speaker, with Speaker Johnson, but a campaign spokesman said, and I quote, now Donald Trump has his loyal foot soldier to ban abortion nationwide, which isn't exactly, I mean, that's true given Speaker Johnson's um, public comments and record. So what are the 2024 implications for Johnson's elevation to speaker? So I don't think that a lot of voters are going to be casting their ballots um, thinking about Speaker Johnson, assuming he's still Speaker by that time, which I suppose we we it's can't true. guarantee. Um, but what could happen, right? It depends on it depends on the management of the legislature, um, because you know there are many many opportunities uh, for things to blow up in the House, particularly with a government shutdown. If you had an extended government shutdown, um, that could uh, have political implications. I suspect it would be uh, blamed on Republicans, although um, you know it depends on exactly how it played out. Um, or you know you could have a situation where you have the clear will of the House and the Senate uh, being to fund Ukraine uh, and its resistance to Russian aggression, but the Republicans won't allow it to to pass. Um, that could have some marginal effect. Um, so I mean, we're gonna we're gonna have to see. It's not you know it's not just a question of of um, the rhetoric portraying Johnson and his record. It's really gonna depend on what he does and and uh, and whether um, whether he can deliver Republicans for the deals that are gonna end up having to be made. The perfect segue to the question I'm about to ask you, Jennifer, about um, what Speaker Johnson said last night. Uh, it was reported that he wants to avoid a November 17th government shutdown. Uh, and this was reported in, uh, I got this out of Punchbowl last night. He wants to avoid a November 17th government shutdown and has already floated another continuing resolution extended until mid-January or mid-April. 
Jennifer, is that even realistic given how cantankerous the Republican majority is? And that's actually one of the reasons why Kevin McCarthy is no longer speaker. Well, this may um, number his days. We may be on to speaker number six um, in no time. Uh, and this is the problem. This is what Ramesh was talking about, is that if you have people who are absolutely committed to non-functional, dysfunctional government, then you can't get any of these things done. Listen, Johnson has the perfect excuse. He can say, listen, I didn't inherit this. There were these terrible deals made by uh, Kevin McCarthy. We should just get them off the table sweep them along and get on with our business. Whether he can do that and survive remains an open question. But I would say this, um, I think Democrats would be wise to have a little bit of a shift in the way they look towards 2024. Um, there is an argument, obviously, that democracy is at risk, and I firmly believe that. But really what 2022 showed us was that Voters are exhausted with dysfunction and with extremists. And to the extent to which Trump's dysfunctional extremism, radicalism, craziness feeds into the House's dysfunctional, radical extremism, Democrats have the opportunity to say, listen, um, do you want chaos? Do you want utter dysfunction? Or do you want basically kind of functional government that you may not like all the time, an older president, but we're not nuts. We're not crazy. We're not going to disrupt um, your life continually. And that may be a powerful message for them going into 2024. And the more the House looks like Trump and the more Trump looks like the House, the more believable I think that analysis is, that these are people who are just committed um, to nihilism and to destruction and burn it all down. Ramesh, um, I think in the time that we have left, we might have a little bit more time, but love, would love your perspective on this, because one of the things that President Biden always says to sort of calm Democrats down, but also make the case of the country is don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Doesn't Speaker Johnson help set up, help push along that alternative narrative that the president's been trying to make? Well, I mean, I think that look, if Trump is the nominee, as is as is as is looking likely at the moment um, for the Republicans, that's all the contrast you need, right? Um, Trump remains an ex an unpopular figure. He has been a consistently unpopular figure. Um, but you know, I think there are Democrats who are rightly nervous um, about uh, the possibility that Trump can, in fact, win in 2024, and a Trumpy party can, in fact, win in 2024. Um, I think that the, the strategy of portraying the Republicans as, as nuts and dysfunctional, uh, you know, it may very well be the Democrats' best strategy, but it requires for its execution a couple of things. One, the Democrats have to, uh, I think, maybe do a little bit more than they have at marginalizing um, some of their own extreme figures um, in the squad. Uh, but second, they've got to be showing that things are functioning and things are going well. And and right now, um, that's not just that's just not where the public is perceiving the condition of the country to be. All right. I think we are exactly out of time. Ramesh Panuru, Jennifer Rubin, as always, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.